As you know, several members of the Academy student faculty are with us this morning. I'm delighted to welcome Sophie to come and read our Scripture passage to us. Sophie, please do. And as Sophie makes her way here, most of you will want to know why are we turning to Hebrews chapter 11, because this morning we begin a new series of studies that are going to take us through most of May and into June. And today we're beginning with Hebrews 11 verse 1, and we are reading through to verse 7. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he commended the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Thank you. We appreciate all your help this morning. One of the things I really enjoy doing when I have a little downtime is watching movies. And over the last few years, I have also watched some programs that are streamed on either Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that. And I would have to tell you that over the last probably decade or so, I have enjoyed Star Wars franchise, some of the new ones, along with the Marvel franchise, and I'm currently halfway through The Mandalorian Season 3, which I think is very well done, so I'm enjoying that. And if you wanted to tie me down and say, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying, but what is your favorite genre of movies? What is the classification that you go to more than others? I would have to say historical movies. Things like Schindler's List, The Patriot, The King's Speech, The Darkest Hour. Movies that focus on historical fact with real people and actual events. Now, having said all of that, my favorite series of movies are clearly by far Indiana Jones. And there's a new one coming out in June 28th at the Cannes, in fact, end of May at the Cannes Film Festival and general release the end of June. And I can't wait. And you are probably saying to yourself, now Richard, hold on a second. Indiana Jones does not fall into the classifications of historical movies, real people, and actual events. And my response is... Yes, they do, and that's all I've got to say about that. So that's that debate finished. It's, I think what draws me to them is actual events and real people. And today we're beginning this series on Hebrews chapter 11 that focuses on actual events and real people. And in fact, Hebrews 11 is often described as 
God's portrait gallery of faith. Now, if you go to Washington, D.C. and wander around the National Portrait Gallery, you will find portraits of individuals who often have had an impact or an influence on our national life. And it is certainly worth seeing. If you go into the Capitol Rotunda, which I think is one of the best uh, buildings in all of D.C., that sense of portrait gallery is still there. There are eight spectacular paintings, four of them from the revolutionary period, the other four from the exploratory period when, as a nation, we were moving westward and exploring the continent itself. And each of these pictures pictures depict individuals who, with dedication, commitment, sheer hard work and determination, achieved remarkable things. And once again, you see actual events, real people. Around three million people wander through the Capitol Rotunda every day, and it's a spectacular experience. And as we come to Hebrews chapter 11, coming to the portrait gallery of faith, we are going to bump up with, bump against real people, actual events, and people who are, for want of a better description, both inspirational and aspirational. And the writer to the Hebrews includes them there to encourage us, to say to us, could you be that sort of person could you be that kind of congregation? Could you be that kind of community that will impact and influence your community? And that's where we're going in Hebrews chapter 11. Some folks have said to me this week, Richard, where are we going now that we're finished with James on a Sunday morning? And I've tried to explain Hebrews chapter 11, and I've tried to explain it fairly clumsily. And so, this past week, I thought maybe an explanatory paragraph would be the way to go. And so, this is how I'm describing our upcoming series. God often calls the most ill-prepared, hesitant, and unlikely he insists in using those who have been wounded by life's challenges, crippled by circumstances, and are fearful about their future. Amid such obstacles, genuine faith matures and develops as character and grit is formed. The remarkable potential that God births within each of us is explored in Hebrews 11. Here we find ordinary people who lived by faith and discovered they are capable of extraordinary things. And that's what I think we're going to discover today and in subsequent weeks. And most of you know, if you've worshipped with us for the last five or six months on a regular basis, that whenever we come to a new passage of Scripture, there are three focal points that we hold in tension every Sunday. And some of you have heard me say this multiple times before, and to you it's a little redundant or over, overly repetitive, so please forgive me. But whenever we come to a passage, we're always going to look at the following. Number one, the historical context. Who is writing to whom and why? And we're about to see who has been written to and why in a couple of moments. Secondly, we're going to look at the theological content. In other words, what is God saying in this passage? 
What does it say about him? And how does that apply to me in a 21st century context? Many of you have heard me say this in the past, that sometimes when it comes to studying the Scriptures, one of the questions we ask when we come to a new passage of Scripture is, what does this passage mean to me? That's not a bad question to ask. It's just not the first question you should ask, because, because the first question you should ask is, what does this passage mean? And then once you have established that, then you ask, what does this passage mean to me? The secondary never becomes the primary, and the primary never becomes the secondary. And so, that's why we focus on theological content. And thirdly, and this is the one that most folks have a hard time with when we think of the literary structure of the passage. Now, for those of you who are English majors, you will know exactly what this means. And what I'm trying to say is that whenever you look at the literary structure, you're asking, what was the original author's intent? Why did he use this particular word, this particular phrase? What is he seeking to communicate with us? And so, that's what we mean when we talk about literary structure. How do those words and phrases compare to other passages in Scripture? And so, we put them all together. And so, we look at the historical context, the theological content, and the literary structure. So, as we come to Hebrews 11, The end of chapter 10 sets the context for chapter 11, as is often the case in Scripture, because, of course, the epistle is flowing in a particular direction. And at the end of chapter 10, this is what he writes. He writes, remember those earlier days after you received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to a group of people who have gone through public persecution. In other words, arrested for your faith, your home, and your business being confiscated by the state. And there's no consensus on this, but the evidence suggests, and I think the majority of New Testament scholars would also say, that the writer to the Hebrews was probably writing to a church in Rome that had gone through persecution in and around Rome itself. So, these folks have come through some tough and difficult days. They're on the verge of wondering, should I just give up? What is the point of trying to live out my faith when all of society and culture is against me? Why should I stand strong in my faith? And so, that's the historical context of what's happening here. Now, why chapter 11? Because if you stop at the end of chapter 10, jump forward to the not quite the first verse, but second or third verse in chapter 12, they go together quite well. So, let me explain what I mean. The end of chapter 10, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe 
and they're saved. And then if we jump to chapter 12, it would work quite nicely. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So, the end of 10, if I can come this way, and beginning of 12 would marry very nicely. So, why does chapter 11, why is it in there? Why is it important? And the author of the book of Hebrews pauses intentionally, purposefully, to say, I want you to think for a moment, and I want you to come back with me to look at this great portrait gallery of heroes of the faith, men and women in which He has put His hand upon them, ordinary, everyday people who achieved incredible things in their own generation, for God was right there with them. And that's why chapter 11 is there. It's there to encourage us and to strengthen us and to equip us to live out our faith from the very moment it was written back in the first century all the way through to the 21st. And so that's why we're focusing on chapter 11. Now, please also notice this, that the people who are commended by God, and remember we talked about the literary structure why does a biblical author use a particular word or a particular phrase? Well, he uses the phrase, the English equivalent, commend. That's a strong word. That's almost a legal finding. You can imagine it easily being said in a court of law where the judge commends the witness for their courage. Commended by God. Now, think of that. How is that for a legacy? How is that for an epitaph to be written on your gravestone? John Smith, commended by God. And that's what's going on in Hebrews chapter 11. They were commended for their faith. They looked to the future they held on to the promises of God. That which was yet unseen became real to them. Just as for us, we look back to the time of Christ, all that we celebrated two weeks ago with Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and by faith we rejoice in all that He accomplished for us. But the ancients Genesis chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're about to look at them, did the opposite. They looked forward and believed and were commended by God for it. So, all of that is wrapped up here. And it's also worth remembering that whenever an individual, a couple, a family, a congregation, a group, say that from this moment on, by grace, through faith, we will follow His call on our lives, be obedient to Him, and stand on the promises of God. That's the kind of group that has an impact that is not easily forgotten. That's the kind of group who, stepping out in faith, influence and impact and make a difference in their generation, just as it was with Abel and Enoch and Noah. 
And so this morning, as we come to this passage, we're going to begin with Abel. Now, you may be sitting there saying, okay, (laughs) Richard, hold on. I understand what you're saying, but tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, I will be back in my office, and on my desk will be a pile of invoices and some receipts and email correspondence I have to catch up with. And quite frankly, I work in finance, and there is absolutely nothing aspirational or inspirational about shuffling paper in the finance department. Richard, I have to tell you, I work in retail, or I'm in education, or I'm in medicine, or law. Richard, I'm just an ordinary, everyday kind of person. I am not an inspirational, aspirational figure. My image will never be on the Capitol Rotunda or in the National Portrait Gallery. I would never find myself in the Portrait Gallery of Faith. And Richard, frankly, I'm finding it hard to identify with any of the people mentioned in this passage, so give me something that I can can somehow begin to see myself here. Well, let me suggest this, that who you are tempted to think of as having extraordinary faith would tell you this. They were ordinary people with faith in an extraordinary God. That's what's going on in Hebrews chapter 11. That's how we identify with them, because they are just like us, going through challenges and changes and everything that life brings their way. And yet, by faith, they followed Him and responded to His call. Now, having said all that, let's look at Abel. The passage tells us, verse 4, by faith Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did, and by faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith he speaks still, even though he's dead. And immediately you're saying, okay, Richard, what does that verse mean? He speaks even though he's dead. In essence, it means this. It is a poetic, metaphorical phrase by the writer of Hebrews saying, even though Abel lived back then, he still speaks today, and he still speaks today for this reason, and we're about to see it. Cain and Abel are found in Genesis chapter 4, almost back at the beginning of time itself. And Abel offers a sacrifice to God. And in Genesis 4, we discover he worked with livestock, possibly a shepherd, or at least for our discussion, let's imagine a shepherd. He would look after sheep or goats. His brother Cain did not work with livestock, he worked the land. And let's imagine Cain put together an offering of grain, and Abel put together an offering of young sheep, a ewe, perhaps a young goat, a kid. And why was one acceptable and one was not? Was it the intrinsic value and worth of the gift itself? We may be tempted in our minds to say, well, quite honestly, Richard, I imagine that a young goat is of greater worth than a handful of grain, and you might be right, 
but it's not the intrinsic value or worth of the sacrifice itself. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus tells us the story of the older lady. Do you remember the story about the widow's might? She gave all she possibly could, and it wasn't the intrinsic value that mattered. And in fact, it is best understood in this way. There was a difference in the sacrifice being offered in this sense. A sacrifice from Abel is an outward expression of a devoted and obedient heart. In other words, Abel is stepping forward and saying, Father, take the best I have to offer and I'm using it as an outward expression of a devoted heart, a heart that wants to know you in that deeper, richer, fuller way, a heart that wants to nourish your relationship, a heart that wants to grow in faith. And that's why Cain's was acceptable, or Abel rather. Over here, Cain is kind of going through the ropes a kind of casual offhand manner. He thinks, well, let me get some grain together, and I will take it to the place of sacrifice, and I will leave it there, and I will stand back, and that will be fine. And God says, Cain, it's not the sacrifice I'm after. Cain, it's you I want. It's your heart, your soul, your mind. Cain, I love you and love you deeply, and I want you to know me and follow me, and I want you to walk with me the rest of your days. And Cain is oblivious. It marginalizes and minimizes God, in fact. And in Genesis chapter 4, he is angry with God because God does not receive his sacrifice the same way as he received Cain's, excuse me, Abel. And God says to him, Cain, why are you angry? And in fact, he goes deeper and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. And unless you master it, this will not end well. And that phrase, sin is crouching at your door, is used right there in Genesis chapter 4. And what God is saying is this, Cain, you're giving in to sin. Cain, your motivation and desire and will are not where they should be. Purity of heart, holiness of lifestyle is not where it needs to be. And in fact, we know the rest of the story, do we not? That eventually Cain takes the life of his brother Abel. Can you imagine how horrific that is when a brother kills his brother? Talk about a dysfunctional family unit. Good night. Cain was in a bad place. And God says, Cain, you need to be careful, for he could see within him all of this percolating away. Now, having said all of that, we move from Cain and Abel by faith, Enoch. And Enoch is one of those wonderful characters in Scripture that we're not told that much about, quite honestly. But what we are told is this, that Enoch walked with God. But it happened at a certain time in his life. 
He was 65 years old. Genesis chapter 5 tells us. And let me begin our exploration of Enoch with an illustration. I came across this last week, and it was so good I wanted to share it with you. And it says, my son proposed to his fiancée about six months ago, and she said, yes. They are super happy. We love her family too. I just found out today that another girl is in love with him and plans to propose to him next week. Should I see anything? Oh, he's four. They're all four. (laughs) Now, of course, we smile and enjoy that because the story was heading in one particular way until we got to the end and we discovered, in fact, it was heading in another altogether. And that's the story of Enoch. In Genesis 5, it tells us this. Twice, in three or four verses, it says, Enoch walked with God. Isn't that a great phrase? If all of our ancient manuscripts of Genesis crumbled around the ends, and we only had that one phrase on Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God, it would tell us that he was an extraordinary kind of individual. Walked with God. And a verse or so later, it tells us this. When Enoch had his son Methuselah, He then walked with God 365 years. Now, that's a long time. But the writer of Genesis is clear. When he had his son, then he walked with God. And I would have to tell you as a pastor, I see that pattern in young couples. I see the pattern when young couples come to talk about baptism and delight to have this wee one in their arms. And they look down and remember the first day they brought him home from hospital. And they're standing there nursing and looking down, and they're instantly in love. And then they begin to understand as they look down and smile how on earth am I ever going to raise this wee one? Never mind three of them, just one. How on earth am I going to raise this wee one? What am I going to teach him? How am I going to model parenthood for him? What standards and values will I impart into this wee soul? How could I ever be a parent and be the parent God wants me to be? And then suddenly, as Enoch comes to God with Methuselah seeking help, God puts his hand upon him and begins to change him and open his heart and mind and soul and teach him and draw him close. And for the next 365 years, he walked with God. Now think of that image. This is not a sudden burst of enthusiasm. This is not being able to persevere for a couple of weeks, but day after day after day after day, going deeper and richer in his relationship with God, walking with him and persevering with him and watching the transformation come into his life. That's what's happening with Enoch. An ordinary individual 
living an extraordinary life. And what else can we say for Enoch? It was a decisive act and a sustained attitude over the long term. Now, time is running on, and I need to wrap things up. So, what do we say about Noah? Noah, a passage we know so well, begins, by faith, Noah followed the call of God, and that took courage. That took faith. And by that, I mean this. Can you imagine Noah's family and friends and neighbors, the first day that Lowe's delivered a huge package of timber and nails and saws and screws and contractors were working day and night. Can you imagine? And he's miles from the coast. And people are saying, Noah, what on earth are you doing? Well, <coughs> I'm kind of a little embarrassed about this, but God has called me to build an ark. Noah, have you been drinking? No, I haven't, honestly. And it goes on day after day, week after week, and neighbors are looking at him and shaking his head. And how, do we, how does that apply to us today? Well, simply this. If you are determined to grow in your faith, the day will come when you will be challenged. And individuals may well say to you, I see you're going to church more. I hear you're going to prayer time and Bible study and Sunday morning. Are you okay? You take a stand on what you watch on television and what you'll go to in the movies. You don't participate in the coarse or vulgarity of an office joke, and you stand firm on Christian values and standards because to you, His love, His grace, your relationship with Him are so much more important than all this other stuff. Is that you? That's Noah, who by faith was standing on the promises of God, and would not move. So, let me wrap it all up in four very brief points this morning, points we've already touched on. And if I'm going to say them, the first is this. It was not so much that they had an extraordinary faith, and I have already mentioned this, but rather faith in an extraordinary God. He's got you will not give up and you, will not walk away from you, will not abandon you. He's got you. Number two, God is not asking us to figure it all out. He's asking you to trust that He already has, and you trust Him by faith. Number three, a sacrifice is acceptable when it's an outward expression of a devoted and obedient heart. 
And you may struggle with that a little and say, okay, Richard, I think I know what you mean, but next Sunday morning, I'm not going to turn up with two turtle doves or an offering of grain and leave them on the communion table. I'm just not going to do that. What do you mean a sacrifice is acceptable? A sacrifice is when you are willing to say, I sacrifice the person I once was in order to become more Christ-like in my place of work, and in my family, and in my neighborhood. I am changing from the outside. Prayer is a living reality. I will gladly live under His rule and reign, and let my faith regulate my life and behavior. That's a sacrifice. That's what's going on here. It's an outward expression of a devoted and obedient heart. And finally, walking with God often involves a decisive and sustained attitude. And how do we do it? What's that magic key to open up the lock of walking with God the rest of our lives, of growing in our faith, of worshiping Him, of becoming closer to Him? The magic key is simply this. We do so by faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank You that once again it speaks into our lives. Equip and enable us to draw closer to You than where we have been in recent days. And may we, like Enoch of old, walk with You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.